Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. We are a podcast of the 1517 Podcast Network. Uh, You can find out more about that network and what they do. They do more than just podcasts, but there's uh, quite a few podcasts out there. 15legacy.com, I believe, is the address there. I'm here with Wade in his backyard. And we're going to continue our Winging It series, which is kind of a a skip through church history. Uh, We started in Jerusalem right after the fall of Jerusalem. And uh, we've made our way now through the Reformation and into what happened right after the Reformation, really probably could be described by some historians as uh, Reformations. There's going to be a Catholic Reformation. Um, And so the the reason we're going uh, through this is we, or I should say the, the impetus for this is uh, Mark Knoll's book, Turning Points, and he designates uh, the founding of the Jesuits, so about 1540, as uh, a turning point in church history. But it's not just the Jesuits, it is uh, the Catholic Reform, and then also uh, the beginning of what we might call uh, worldwide mission work. And so there's a lot going on here, and different things too. And I think as I was driving over here, Wade, I kind of thought, um, we Lutherans tend to kind of forget that other things happen in the world, especially at the Reformation. First of all, we're guilty of that as if everything was centered on Europe. Certainly there, it's our heritage and it's worthy, uh, to, to, uh, uh, study that history. And quite frankly, we have more things written about this than we do about, uh, places like, uh, South Africa or what we today know as Argentina or something like that. But, but we're also guilty of thinking that, well, the Roman Catholic church just kind of ceased and was just sitting there waiting for the Lutherans. And then later the reformed, uh, what we now know as maybe Arminians doing their thing. But there's a whole other world out there, and uh, things were happening there, and there was a counter-reformation, maybe against uh, the reformations of uh, the Lutherans and uh, maybe of, of the Calvinists, but also there was an internal reformation going on too. But perhaps most uh, significant is some real serious mission work done by Roman Catholics, I mean to Japan to China, to other places, well before um, uh, the so-called Protestants got their act together and started sending out mission missionaries. So uh, last time we let off, left off with this idea of a new Europe, um, it's not like the Roman Catholics have given up their uh, move against the, the, the Lutheran Reformation, but uh, certainly there is a little bit of a sense like, okay, there's going to be such a thing as the evangelicals. There's going to be such a thing as a Calvinist church. How do we deal with that? And so there is uh, this uh, meeting at Regensburg, which is, I believe, Melanchthon attended. So uh, an attempt at reconciliation, maybe, at least some theological, uh, try to understand each other. And then uh, the Roman Catholic Church is kind of kind of doubled down at the Council of Trent. And then that is going to be what we know as Roman Catholicism, really, up until uh, the 20th century. A lot of those things uh, were set and became kind of permanent for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, Martin Chemnitz wrote the, the great uh, examine, the examination of the Council of Trent from a theological point of view from the from the Lutheran side. But there was also good things in Trent too, um, or at least in and around Trent. Um, uh, some re- Reformation things of the Roman Catholic Church that they they understood that needed to be reformed. So I'll kick it to you and you can give us maybe a little bit more in-depth historical setting. 
Yeah, just what to call this period is actually um, very interesting in that uh, the the earliest title or popularized title that was given to it was uh, um, the Counter-Reformation, which was given it by a, uh, a Protestant, Leopold von Ranke, who's one of the first historians um, to really try to write a, a thorough history of this period. And he... Uh, his goal was to tell things as they really were. Uh, I won't bore you with the German on that. But that, that title in and of itself stuck for a long time. And we might say, well, that makes sense. They were responding to the Protestant Reformation. But it's been questioned more recently, and um, a Jesuit himself, O'Malley, uh, is a, a good writer on the Jesuits in Trent. Uh, I enjoy his books. And he has really argued, you know, that there's a lot of titles for this period, and none of them are perfect, and all of them get at something. So we can speak of the Counter-Reformation, but as Mike said, then we're, we're very much coming from a Protestant perspective, um, and we're maybe missing out at things that were going on in the broader Roman Catholic Church that weren't necessarily a direct response to, to Protestantism. Um, some have uh, suggested Catholic Reformation, uh, which is perhaps a, a helpful title. Some have said Catholic Renewal because it was already... Uh, aspects of renewal taking place in the church before the Reformation and continuing afterwards. And then uh, some have said, well, we should just, you know, O'Malley suggests we should call it early modern Catholicism, just Catholicism during this period. Uh, but then you get into the question of, well, what's early modern? And uh, and that periodization itself can be an issue. Uh, I apologize if I'm coughing or huffing and puffing. My allergies have been <coughs> nuts the last two days. I'm I mowed my uh, lawn last week, so it must be getting to me. <clears throat> but um, just the thing itself, well, what is happening? Uh, to what extent is it a response to Protestantism? To what extent is it building on things that were already taking place within Roman Catholicism? Um, to what extent is it uh, reform versus a doubling down, for instance? Um, Trent will definitely double down on some things. Uh, that in and of itself is an interesting question, but... Maybe if we start with the Jesuits, I think that can be somewhat helpful. Um, in my honors course, I use the biography auto, or the biography of um, Ignatius Loyola, um, written early on, uh, as one of our readings in class when we talk about uh, the Counter-Reformation or whatever we want to call it. And Ignatius Loyola is a, a fascinating man. He had been a soldier. He's wounded in battle. His uh, leg bone is protruding through his leg. Um, he insists that they saw the bone off because it looks unseemly. Um, he was a rather vain man, but a good soldier and uh, a tough guy. But he ends up uh, on a long road to recovery, and while he recuperates, he uh, begins to have... Uh, he's, his, his mind is turned to religious thoughts. He begins to read the lives of the saints and things of that nature. And he decides that he wants to pattern his life after the lives of the saints, that he wants to live a life of repentance. <clears throat> uh, now, Luther was moved to a life of repentance as well. If you think of the 95 Thesis, they begin with the whole Christian life should be a life of repentance. Um, but this uh, is going to draw Loyola deeper into the church, whereas it Luther responded against uh, early modern or medieval Catholicism uh, because of this. And so Loyola is going to do things like uh, work on repairing some churches, um, trying to do good works, living a life of poverty. Um, and he, he wants to become a servant of the church. He has a, a rather rocky road, but um, there are people who are impressed by his newfound piety and, and begin to follow him. 
he decides he needs to become more educated if he's going to be able to serve well. And so he kind of does like a Billy Madison type thing, if you've ever seen that Adam Sandler movie. And he goes back to school and he begins at a very low level and works his way back up. Um, studies eventually in Paris, among other places. <clears throat> and uh, actually gets investigated by the Inquisition a few times because you have this guy walking around who's... Uh, you know, not part of the institutional church necessarily, who's now devoted himself to Christ, is, uh, you know, de facto preaching, what we would consider preaching, evangelizing. And uh, the accounts are rather interesting. He kind of goes in front of the Inquisition and says, yeah, no, I understand. You guys can have me here, and I want to submit to the church. And they kind of check into him, and they can't find anything really too wrong with him. And so he is uh, he's set free, and we're reminded then that the Inquisition wasn't just uh, necessarily torturing everyone um but he wants this order to be an order that uh at first is, is going to evangelize and if i'm remembering i always confuse him with saint francis i think they both wanted to go to the middle east and he uh he makes his way to the holy land eventually um but it ends up being a long kind of disastrous trip um he gets there and they're they're not letting uh the Western tourists um, go to many sites because there's been kidnappings, things like that. He ends up coming back somewhat dejected. But uh, as the order begins to be founded in a religious order, right now this is a group of people they're going to gather around and you're going to have to eventually write a rule or a constitution for that order. And there's a lot of orders that are developing at this time, which shows there was a renewal taking place in the church, but also um, orders being formed for specific tasks. And in a, the great turn of events is going to be that rather than uh, being something focused on the Holy Land or anything like that, the Jesuits, um, they'll end up in Rome, especially for a while as they're waiting to be approved as an order, and uh, will end up founding schools, and they become very adept at, at educating. Um, the grade system, as we think of it today, largely comes from the Jesuits, that you go through a curriculum, you know, first grade to second grade to third grade, <clears throat> um, and they'll also become very good missionaries. Uh, they they have this crazy idea of kind of learning the culture and the language. Um, they uh, oftentimes will send people out in pairs to, to do this work, um, and they'll end up making their way all the way to the uh, to the far east, um, and have very important missions places like China and, and elsewhere, for instance. But then those two things will combine, the mission work and the schools will combine also to win back Protestant territories. And oftentimes what the Jesuits will do is found these very good schools um, on the edge of or in or, or as close as they can get to Protestant lands. And you have upwardly mobile uh, Protestants who want a good education for their kids. And they end up in a situation that probably lots of people end up in still today where maybe a school doesn't share one's religious convictions, but it's the best school in the area. Boston College, yeah. Marquette. I mean, we could we could list off quite a few uh, universities. No, quite a few uni universities that were founded by the Jesuits. Uh, Jesuits, by the way, Society of Jesus. That's where they right. get the name Jesuits. And if you see a Roman priest with an S J at the end of it, he's in the Society of, uh, of, of Jesus. He's a Jesuit. But boy, Boston College, Marquette. I, you have University of Detroit. Detroit is Georgetown. Um, yep, Georgetown is. I mean, you're talking some serious... Any, any Loyola's. You're talking some serious, serious institutions of higher learning. And uh, uh, so, you know, thank you, but at the same time, you know... But these, these schools then accomplish this task of kind of winning back, and they recognized, especially you want to win back the ruling class. Um, 
And so they'll even be very successful in the East so that someone like uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky has a very negative view of the Jesuits as he sees them uh, meddling in Russia in his view. Um, and they'll become, uh, you know, in some places identified with the, you know, the saying, the ends justifies the means. That's not necessarily always fair. Um, but Ignatius Loyola is someone, every time I, I read the biography, is someone that if you were a, um, a Lutheran, he'd be one of my big heroes. Um, but it's hard not to respect him for uh, the humility and the determination he showed. And having been a former soldier, kind of this the, the organizational skill that the Jesuits took on uh, to uh, to be able to carry out everything that they did. Yeah, and just it's really remarkable when you understand the history of it. I mean, uh, they're in North America um, converting uh, Native Americans, the Hurons, I believe. Um, they are in Indonesia, they make it to India, they make it to China, they make it to Japan. Uh, Xavier um, being uh, uh, one, of his, one, one of the most famous, the most famous besides um, probably. Loyola, I would probably For say. Work, yeah. um, and uh, you alluded to this before that there was, uh, he did mission work maybe a little bit differently and that was to really get into the culture and so changing his clothes from the um, uh, the, the monks kind of habit. I don't know. Can we call it a habit or just a Zephyr nuns? I don't know. Mm. But uh, kind of the humble uh, dress to something that was a little bit more, I guess we would say flashy, um, because you needed to fit into the, especially the upper crust of the Japanese culture at that time and did remarkable work very early on. There were some setbacks later. Um, but he was, uh, right. And, and I think Loyola and, and Xavier were both the, the establishments like hold on for a second because of their success, but also their zealousy. I mean, I mean, when you see a zealot, you're like, uh, hold on now, is this guy going to go crazy? Is this guy going to, uh, ride really hot for a while and then crash and burn? And so they did check them out, but it turned out okay. And, uh, that's an interesting topic too. When we think about, uh, Roman Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic mission work, I don't want to downplay their zeal or downplay the work that did happen because the gospel was presented there, not in the fashion that we Lutherans would like, of course, but uh, it was presented in places that were uh, that had never heard the gospel before. But the criticism of the Roman Catholic uh, mission work uh, is always that, that kind of syncretistic. So yep. you take, okay, Mary, and then you just uh, take the uh, the biggest female. Our Lady of God, Guadalupe yeah. has a long history of, you know, what all is from Catholicism and what's from Native religion. You can think of Haiti. You can think of um, Sub-Saharan Africa, all these places. At the same time, it's it's easy for Protestants, especially evangelical Protestants, will point that out. I, I've, 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 I've seen and heard that. It's easy to do that, and I think correct in a lot of ways. Um, but one, it kind of fits their theology, you know. Um, and second, um, they really wanted to get into the culture, right? And so uh, I, I think the impulse was good, right? Um, to to not only learn the language, but learn the culture, and 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 not just okay, I'm going to translate something now into um, you know Mandarin. But rather, I'm going to, as Luther did, right, take the idioms, take the culture of the Bible and put it into uh, the idioms and the cultural way of 
of describing events and things in that native tongue. And you can see how easily some of those names get mixed up or some of those concepts get mixed up. And if you have a long history of, um, uh, or a very developed kind of saint worship, um, that the idea of worshiping your ancestors just how could it not kind of collide and then meld together, you know? And so even though we're right to criticize that at the same time, I don't think they, that, you know, Xavier went in and said, well, we're just going to, we're just going to mix these religions. That's not what his intention was. I, I don't think, but rather you could see how easily that could happen. Well, and I think we've, we talked about last time out or a while back. I mean, even in America, we'd be naive to think that there's not a, large elements of syncretism in our own Christianity and especially in Protestantism. Politics. Yeah. I think where does the culture end and the, in the, in the confession begin things of this nature. So there's just, I, that's just a challenge that we're never going to get around so far as it comes to the church. Um, you mentioned, you know, some leeriness of them at first because of their zeal. There's going to be a lot of hostility towards them from other religious orders as well. Um, one of the things that will be unique about the Jesuits is that they report directly to the papacy. Uh, and so for a while there, they're, they're uh, what some have called the, the Pope's stormtroopers, and they're responsible for a lot of the big undertakings that are taking place in the church at this time. And so even still today, when you talk to people who belong to religious orders in the Roman Catholic Church, um, they can have various uh, takes on what they think of, uh, of Jesuits. The Lutherans themselves also were not very fond of the Jesuits. Uh, if you read things from the time, you'll find phrases like Diva Dompton Jesuiten, those damn Jesuits. Um, th- it, there's this awareness um, that they're bringing a vibrancy uh, and a, uh, a doctrinal confession, right? And uh, preaching and teaching um, to the Roman Catholic uh, Church that had been m- missing for a long time. And in many ways, they're uh, striving to beat Protestants at their own game, right? We're going to preach. We're going to teach. We are uh, um, going to educate. And so this becomes uh, very tense in many places. And and if you were to look at a map of, of Europe, let's say in the fifteen late 1530s, early 1540s, and then look in the 1560s or so, Protestantism is going to lose a lot of the ground, a lot of the areas that people thought might go Protestant, especially might go Lutheran. Um, that will be beaten back um, by the Jesuits, uh, also because the Jesuits are successful, as the Lutherans had been, of winning over princes or territorial rulers. Um, I don't know, Mike, if you have anything else on that or if we want to jump to well, Trent. I, I, that's interesting. Then I have a question for you. Um, you know, that's why I don't mind the, and I'm certainly no historian, but I don't mind that label counter-reformation, right? You know, I... The, I think the Catholic Church got punched in the mouth with the Lutheran Reformation. And certainly one of the things that the Lutherans had and what later the Calvinists had was some zeal. You know, sometimes good, sometimes bad. You can think about the uh, the Anabaptists and stuff like that. And the Catholic Church maybe is distracted by politics, distracted by money, uh, it, it, this just and it's not just a religious thing. I think this is anything. When when this establishment becomes a bloated bureaucracy, it becomes too large. That it becomes uh, less than less than passionate about its cause, and it's about keeping power. And uh, the the underdog comes and punches it the bully in the mouth, and then 
to have the Jesuits come back with as much zeal and as much organization and to do two things very well, although you mentioned a third one, uh, winning over some of the higher higher ups, but uh, the mission work and then also uh, the education was exactly the counterweight that the Roman Catholic Church wanted against the Lutheran Reformation. My question to you is, um, you mentioned some lands wavering here back and forth and, and maybe were one for the Roman Catholic side. Was Poland one of them? I, don't I think know. Poland, Austria, um, East and South especially, um, you're going to have a, a lot of that. Um, but even into uh, probably Southwest Germany, um, not as many strides are make it, are, are made uh, to harden the, conf- the Lutheran Confession or Protestant Confession there as would have been otherwise. But especially, I mean, Poland, people today could, would not guess this because we think of Poland as being about as Catholic as can be, especially if you uh, grew up at all under uh, John Paul. But um, Poland was like the Wild West of religious plurality uh, for a good part of the uh, 16th century. And it's, it's going to end up being lost to the Reformation uh, in, uh, in large part, um, except for the part of Poland today that used to be uh, eastern, you know, the eastern part of Germany before the, uh, the wars. Um, but yeah, this will be a, Poland especially, but Austria... Um, you know, uh, just a fair amount of places where maybe it hadn't gone all Protestant, but but pretty strong footholds have been established. Yeah, last time we talked about what what happens if England goes Lutheran. Uh, I think in- England changes. I think the politics are different. I don't know that you would have the great, maybe even the great English Empire. What happens if Poland goes Lutheran? I mean, can you imagine what Chicago would look like? <laughs> can you imagine what all these uh, American cities would look like? But then you could also ask what what happens in World War One and World War Two. Th- there's a lot to there's a lot to think about uh, in that kind of counterfactual uh, way of thinking. What happens well, if I this mean, happens? If that did happen, does how far east does the Lutheran Confession of the Faith continue to make it? You mm-hmm. know, listen. Yeah, and just the mass of humanity that is the Polish immigrants into um, into America. Um, you know, I, I would ima- I don't know my statistics, but I think Germany's number one, then maybe Ireland, then I would I would guess Poland, maybe even more maybe than even Ireland. Maybe more Poland yeah. than Ireland. Yeah. Um, so you're you're talking uh, th- that would change America as well too. So it's 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 kind of fun to think about those things. And um, so when you look back, you say the rise of the Jesuits, as much great work as they did with education and then mission work that quite frankly Lutherans weren't the Lutherans weren't in Japan in the 1500s at the same time probably the, would you would you say the biggest blow to the Lutheran Reformation at least early on was the rise of the Jesuits I think it'd be a significant part yeah I think um yeah early on that would probably be the biggest blow and then obviously the religious wars will be um one that German Lutheranism never really recovers from well uh what what are we at for time, Mike? If we're about twenty three, so we got we got a few minutes. Why don't we maybe jump to Trent then, just real yeah. quick? But just uh, one point you made. You know, we think of the Jesuits with Counter Reformation, but one of the interesting things with what should we call this is the Jesuits actually come out of Catholic renewal, but they'll end up working for Counter Reformation. Yep. So it's interesting to see um, the Lutherans are not on Loyola's map when he has this religious awakening, or you know, he, he's, he's in Spain. He's right. Up here. <laughs> But uh, but this is this just shows how things in the church can develop and be more than one thing. 
um, it's how hard it can be to categorize movements. Um, if we think of the Council of Trent, uh, it's important to understand that for years uh, there had been calls for a church council. Luther had called for a church council early on. Later in, him, in his ministry, he says, what's the point? They're not going to reform anything. Um, but when they think he's dying, they have him write the small called articles uh, just in case there should be a, a council and also so that no one can say Luther taught this um, as his kind of last will and testament. He obviously survives that by, by a while. Um, there was supposed to be a council at Mantua, um, but the big, the big struggle is where will the council be held, and the papacy does not want to call a council that it might lose power at, and so it wants a council that's in a territory um, that's not going to be overshadowed by a, a political ruler um, or uh, too sensitive or too amenable to Protestantism. And so Trent is going to kind of become where this council will meet. We tend to think of a council meeting, and a council meeting should go an hour or two, or a synod convention maybe three days. This is going to go decades, right? This is going to be called for a while. Then you have things like that people have to go home for, whether it be plague, war. Um, this is a long, ongoing process. I can't. I'm trying to think of the exact years if there's a date range <coughs> that is given for the the total range of it. Um, but this is going to be 1545 to 47, then 51 to 52, and then 60, 62 to 63. So from 45 to 63. Yeah, so just wrap your head around that. Um, it's an ongoing thing. But as Mike said earlier, um, Trent is going to kind of be part of several impulses, too. There's a desire for Catholic renewal. And so there's going to be an emphasis on bishops should be preaching and visiting their people. Um, you shouldn't have these absentee bishops who get a position so that they get the proceeds from him but aren't visiting their people. Um, there's going to be a desire for, and this is counter-reformation, but also renewal for more uniformity in worship. Um, they recognize the power of what takes place in the Mass um, for what that conveys or, conve or confesses to those who are there. Um <clears throat> But I think one of the biggest things that will come out of it is that bishops and pastors should be visiting their people and preaching. There's an emphasis on preaching. And still today, if you've been to a Roman Catholic church and you come from a Protestant background, from a preaching-heavy church, <clears throat> so um, Lutheran church, you know, and then think any American non-denominational or Baptistic, um, you, you go, homily is just a different thing, right, if you hear a priest give a homily. And still today in many Roman Catholic churches, and myself having grown up in them for, you know, 17 years, um, it's not the key point of the Mass, and oftentimes it's very short and um, and not always, uh, well, it's, you know, it, it can be a talk sometimes more than a, a proclamation. And that's not to, to bash Roman Catholicism. Uh, that's just to say there's a difference. And, and what Trent says is we need to have more preaching. Um, but there's also clear counter-reformation aspects to it. Um, Lutheran and Protestant positions are anathematized. So the like teaching of justice... Every, everything is condemned. Yeah, so if you teach justification by grace through faith, you can go to hell. That's what anathematized means, let him be condemned. Um, and it's not bad to anathematize things if you do it rightly. Paul himself says, if I or an angel from heaven should come to you preaching another gospel, let him be condemned, anathematized, let him go to hell. Um, but one of the things that's important to understand with Trent, and O'Malley is good on this as well, is that a lot of things that get called Tridentine or of Trent actually came about after Trent, but weren't actually directly mandated 
or direct products of Trent. But what Trent does do is it um, gives a sense of um, the Roman Catholic Church is is going to be as vibrant as it can be. The Roman Catholic Church is not going to just roll over to Protestantism. Um, the Roman Catholic Church is not going to sit by and let the power of the papacy in Rome wane. Um, so in the territories they have, there's going to be an, uh, a drive to enforce doctrinal and liturgical unity, um, but also this desire to take that clear confession or practice um, into the uh, expanding horizons of the world. And it's important we understand at this time. I mean, this is, Mike mentioned Argentina, South Africa. This is when... Um, at the same time that the Europeans are really starting to turn to the rest of the world. And so we have the the rise of the New World, uh, which is obviously a colonialistic term, and that's for another episode. But um, <clears throat> missionaries are going with, and, and who are many of the early um, explorers and conquerors? They're Spain, Portugal. These are Protestant territories. Really, England's going to get on the map after the Spanish Armada, and that's going to be the real first Protestant force. Um the Dutch will somewhat, but they're large, largely for mercantile purposes. Um, but there's going to be, you know, at the same time, there's this impetus taking place to take the, to take the Roman Catholic Confession of the Faith into the world. Yeah, and who you, who's going to go? But the Zealots, right? And so the Jesuits are going to go, and and maybe a couple of things that we don't really always think about. One is, um. Many of the Jesuits were the ones who tried to defend the native people um, and understood human rights as as uh, as all Christians should understand. And so uh, it's a mixed story when you think about the white Europeans coming over to non-white lands. Um, it, it's not it's it's too easy to say, well, we brought civilization. You're welcome. At the same time, it's too easy to say, well, you just brought destruction. Well, hold on now. I, there's some, there's some things that, that Europe brought to other lands that were good. And it was a mixed bag there. And I can't imagine being on the ground there when you're a Jesuit priest trying to stop Cortez or (laughs) something. And and I will say, um, I'd have to find, I, I use in class, one of the accounts, um, of the Portuguese and the, the infant, the prince, uh, is, they're going into Africa and, you know, they terrorize and slaughter this, um, these Africans. And then they gather the living and they divide up families, you know, to, to bring them into slavery. And then at the end, they tell them in, about Christianity, even the, though they don't even know if they can understand the language. <clears throat> and then they marvel at how the Lord had brought them to so quickly ascent to Christianity. Um, as Mike said, there are there are very sincere missionaries who are advocates for those they're serving, but there was also a, a naivete um, about uh, conversion as well that oftentimes take place, and a lot of terrible things that that happen too. So it really is a mixed bag, and we need to understand too these are um, people who had Europe had been turned in on itself for a good millennia, um, millennium, <clears throat> for the most part, and uh, this is really. Um, I mean, just looking at purported maps of the world and and some of the very fanciful accounts of what the rest of the world is like at this time, as you have this confessional disunity in Europe and these fights about the most what had been the most basic unifying force in Europe over a millennium, right? It had been the Roman Church. Um, you also now have this expansion taking place, um, which made for you know, if if they would have had our media today. 
um, I can only imagine the sense of anxiety and panic and um, yet also optimism and curiosity that would have all been colliding with its, each other. Yeah, what's also interesting is, uh, you know, and Noel points this out, that before the Reformation there was kind of a, not anything goes in the Roman Catholic Church, certainly not, but there was not the strict doctrinal adherence, you got to do it this way or nothing until after Trent, right? I mean, really things kind of got solidified for the then, the next... Yeah, people don't 40. get how much variation and diversity there was in the church before. Yeah, and even still today, I think, more so since uh, Vatican II in the, in the 1960s, but, you know, somebody will quip and, uh, you know, you can, you can, heck, you can be Lutheran and be Catholic as long as you adhere to the, the, to the power of the papacy. It's a big tent, it really is. But after Trent you really start seeing things clamp down a little bit. And so you have that diversity goes away, probably in a bad way from our point of view, obviously a bad way. Um, but then you think about now this coinciding with the rise of exploring other parts of the world and then therefore mission work going out in the world. And as you said, it's Portugal and Spain and Italy that are really the first round of that, you know, England, of course, Venice, later. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, Spain's clearly in the, in the Roman Catholic camp, as is Portugal, as is Italy. And, and so when you look at Catholicism in the lands that were then discovered and settled, however you want to say it, um, you know, colonialized, yeah, they are, um, they are the strongest supporters of the papacy in a, in a lot of ways. And, um, especially the Spanish. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and definitely, uh, old school Catholic, if we can, we can say it that way. And there's more, there's more to it than that. The developing world versus, uh, uh you know, uh, the first world versus the second world. I understand that. And, and education and stuff like that. But when people are in contact with the Protestant church, and we talked about this, before uh, in the last episode the protestant church with that freedom of thought comes a whole lot of other stuff that it maybe isn't so so great and these are national churches so they don't have the the mission impetus in the same way that the roman catholic church did because um or the these, cash right yep or the resources these churches um are largely identified with a certain people or nation um, whereas the, the papacy is still international in scope, and so it has <clears throat> this notion of we're going to discover new places. Well, I mean, the Pope is going to divide part of the new world between Spain and Portugal, and Portugal has better maps, which is why Brazil is so big, <clears throat> and they kind of <laughs> trick Spain. Um, but right, these countries still have this view that the, right, the, these territories belong to God, which means it's the papacy, to some extent, is an arbiter of them. Um, you, you just you don't have those those. Um, factors in play in Protestantism. You'll have England now, the Anglican Church eventually, right, will have um, mission expansion, but that will be tied with the what is viewed as the expansion of, right, the English Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not, they're not sending missionaries to somewhere that's not also becoming part of the English Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, you know, these things are, are largely tied to what individual nations are doing. Yeah, so when you look at, I mean, this is why history is so important and understand what's going on. I mean, if you look at the world today, if you look at uh, the Southern Hemisphere, especially the Southern Western Hemisphere, um, this goes back to that. It was the Jesuits. It was the Roman Catholic Church after Trent. It was um, some of the other um, um, orders that were, were were coming along with these, these new... Um, 
colonial type things. And that's going to affect their culture. It's going to affect um, uh, the way they view the world, even in 2018. It just doesn't go away um, uh, with the passage of time. It, it, takes, it takes more than that. And so to understand this point of history, I think, is really fascinating and important. And, and maybe someone's asking, well, why didn't this happen in China or Japan or something like that? Well, each of those is specific, has specific stories about them where new leaders come out and will persecute um, uh, the Jesuits or any Christian or the Catholics and, and push out of Japan. And popes who will turn on the, the Jesuits. Yeah, they'll it, be banned for a while. And then you also, you know, you, of course you have the rise of communism later on in, in China. And so it, it's a, uh, there's all these twists and turns in history and it's fascinating. A lot of it's sad. A lot of it's exciting. Um, but you can't understand today geopolitics without understanding the past. Yeah, and I think even those who live in an area that has a Jesuit university, um, I mean, Milwaukee is, you think Milwaukee, you think UWM, you think Marquette. Um, these are, now these institutions are not nearly as confessionally Catholic as they used to be. Um, but even even titles um, of cities uh, or waterways, right, these things are, are associated with, in many cases, Jesuit missionaries or, or things from this area, era. Um I guess, Mike, unless you have anything else on this, we probably don't want to go too long on it. You guys, you listeners, um, should we call it Counter-Reformation, Catholic Renewal, Catholic Reformation, Early Modern Europe, uh, Catholicism? Uh, we're going to leave it up to you. Why don't you just think about it and then uh, let the bird fly? Uh, every evening when the sun goes down, get my body and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk. I'm just a drink.